0: Welcome to Charity Village Connects. I'm your host, Mary Beryl. That's the sound of a hummingbird pollinating our world and making it a better place. The hummingbird is Charity Village's logo because we strive, like the industrious hummingbird, to make connections across the nonprofit sector and help make positive change. Over this series of podcasts, we'll explore topics that are vital to the nonprofit sector in Canada. Topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, mental health in the workplace, the gap in female representation in leadership, and many other subjects crucial to the sector. We'll offer insight that will help you make sense of your life as a nonprofit professional, make connections to help navigate challenges, and support your organization to deliver on its mission. In our last episode, which explored alternative revenue streams for nonprofits, we touched on a piece of legislation that, if enacted, could have a dramatic impact on how charities do their work. Bill S 216, otherwise known as the Effective and Accountable Charities Act, seeks to amend the Income Tax Act to empower charities by allowing them to more effectively collaborate with a wider range of organizations including those without charitable status, what the Act refers to as non-qualified donees. Proponents of the bill say that the amendments are necessary to get rid of burdensome and expensive red tape and outdated legal bureaucracy. But the key shift proposed by Bill S two sixteen is much more aspirational to eliminate the deeply rooted and historic paternalism that many see embedded in the current rules about how charities can operate. Recent events seem to indicate that these central goals of Bill S-216 did indeed galvanize lawmakers into making significant changes to the Income Tax Act, but in an entirely unexpected way, as we'll explain later in this podcast. We'll look at how this legislation could resonate not only across Canada, but in communities around the globe, where Canadian nonprofits engage in charitable activities. What seems clear is that 2022 will likely mark a turning point for how Canadian charities can operate and usher in fundamental changes that will impact the sector forever, possibly in profound ways. We'll speak with Senator Ratna Omadvar, sponsor of Bill S-216 along with other nonprofit sector experts as we unpack the systemic problems the bill seeks to solve. We'll examine the pros and cons of this legislation, explore its potential for supporting reconciliation with Indigenous peoples and empowering marginalized communities. As well as the deeper implications of what it means for Canadian charities and their ability to deliver on their missions in this country and around the world. The long and arduous journey of Bill S 216 on this
1: episode of Charity Village Connects. The problem is own activities. Those two words, own activities, prevents charities from working in partnership with others who are not charitable because those activities would not be the own activities of the charity. And they have termed them a legal fiction. Everybody participates in to get around the law. It is time for the law to get around itself.
2: I feel like I'm being disrespectful because I have to create agreements that essentially outline that I am going to provide funds from a non-Indigenous organization to an Indigenous organization, and I'm going to tell them that their use of these funds are on behalf of my organization and my charitable objects, not their mission and mandate.
3: Many of these arrangements are somewhat artificial. They comply, they ensure that the money is being spent the way it should be, but they're cumbersome, they're bulky, and most particularly, they contain a requirement that the Canadian charity organization has the last say, is directing and controlling what's going on. There's growing evidence that Black-led and Indigenous-led
4: and focused organizations are underfunded or unfunded. They're not getting the resources they need. So allowing charities to partner with non-qualified donees, allowing them to support the emergence of leadership in the Black, Indigenous and racialized communities really allows that critical infrastructure to grow and develop.
5: What sort of controls do we need to have over that money? That's really what it's about. They're saying that they don't like the rules that the courts have upheld about five times, which is called direction and control or structured arrangements. I've been working in this area for a long time. Sometimes it can be glitchy or whatever, but most of the time it works.
6: So lots of folks know about the Orange Shirt Society, Orange Shirt Day, right? That is a prime example of an organization that was denied charitable status because their work was not deemed as recognizably charitable. How wild is that?
7: In the words of Senator Ratna Omadvar, current legislation that limits how charities can work with non-charities is a red light to historically marginalized communities, including Indigenous, Black, and other racialized groups. The aim of her Bill S-216 sponsorship is to remove this broken traffic light and allow charities to fund non-qualified donees just as long as the charity takes reasonable measures to ensure that the resources being transferred are only for charitable purposes. As matters stand now, according to Senator Omidvar, everything from minor budget line items to intellectual properties related to the non-qualified partner must either be approved or owned by the funding charity.
6: Protesters took to the streets of Canada's most populous city, Toronto, on Thursday, marking the country's inaugural holiday in honour of the lost children and survivors of Indigenous schools. Every single day, all of us are just fighting to get our culture back and it was unfair of us to lose it.
5: The National Day of Truth and Reconciliation was established in June by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The holiday was created after more than
6: a thousand unmarked graves were found near two schools earlier this year. On Thursday, protesters wore shirts reading Every Child Matters and flecked the streets with the color orange,
5: the symbol of that initiative. One announcement that was in the budget about changes in some regulations impacting the charitable sector. And it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily make the top line news in the midst of all the other things that are happening in the budget, but it is a really big deal for the Canadian charitable sector.
6: As an organization with charitable status, what would change for us with this legislation is that it would make it a lot Less burdensome for us to be building good partnerships with folks on the ground, with the grassroots organizers and activists that we exist to support.
0: If the words Bill S 216 and the Effective and Accountable Charities Act sound unfamiliar to you, you're not alone. Even within the nonprofit community, the bill has somewhat flown under the radar. <laughs> Part of the reason for S-216's relative anonymity may be the headline-grabbing events that overshadowed its introduction in the Senate and later in Parliament. The We Charity scandal and all the scrutiny it placed on the nonprofit sector was still resonating in Ottawa when Senator Omidvar tabled her bill, then known as S-222, in early 2021. Although it passed its third and final Senate reading and made it through a first reading in the House of Commons, S-222 died on the order paper when a snap federal election was called that summer. A year later, with downtown city streets blocked as part of a major protest, faint echoes of blaring truck horns provided accompaniment to the first reading of the Senator's bill, now known as S216. Overshadowing everything, of course, was the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. To set the stage for why she felt this legislation was necessary, Senator Omidvar points to the current Income Tax Act and its reference to terms like own activities and direction and control.
1: It deals with stipulation in the Income Tax Act that states that charities can use their charitable dollars in one of two ways. One, they can use the money directly to provide their services, but these services have to be own activities. And two, they can grant dollars to another charity. So the problem is own activities. Those two words, own activities, prevents charities from working in partnership with others who are not charitable because those activities would not be the own activities of the charity. The trouble with the own activities language is that when a charity needs to work with a non-charity to advance its charitable purpose, then the only way they can work with the non-charity is by entering into a very arcane workaround, which results in the charity imposing direction and control on the non-charity. To be clear,
0: for Senator Omidvar, Bill S. 216 is about much more than semantics. She believes it has the potential to both address outdated neo-colonial attitudes towards charitable activities and to empower marginalized groups to direct their own nonprofit efforts and better serve the communities
1: they live in despite their non-qualified charitable status. Reconciliation is on the top of mind for everyone when a Canadian charity or a Canadian foundation wants to give money to an Indigenous organization that is not a charity they have to go through the same arrangements in other words they have to direct and control them i don't need to tell your listeners what those two words direct and control mean to indigenous organizations i don't need to tell your listeners what direct and control means in the overseas context of the developing south one way or the other this law and the guidance around it is viewed as white saviorism in the developing world and neo-colonialism in our country. So this law needs to change. And my proposal is to change the law in a very thoughtful way so that we don't lose what is at the heart of the current law. At the heart of the current law, is not any intention to be colonial or racist or oppressive. Frankly, you know, I think... It was written at a time when nobody thought of these things. Later in this podcast, we'll speak with two leading voices
0: determined to build stronger relationships between the worlds of philanthropy and Indigenous social impact. We'll ask them for their views on Bill S 216 and what it could potentially mean for Indigenous peoples and communities. But first we'll try to untangle the complicated legal web of the Income Tax Act that currently governs how charities can engage with third-party organizations. Susan Mannering is a partner in the law firm Miller Thompson and a recognized legal expert in advising social enterprises, charities, and nonprofits. She was appointed to the Canada Revenue Agency Consultation Panel on Political Activities of Charities, and to the Government of Canada's Advisory Committee on the Charitable Sector. I spoke with her about the awkward maneuvers charities and foundations sometimes have to make in order to
3: comply with current requirements of the Income Tax Act. The reality is Canadian registered charities work with many organizations that are not Canadian Registered Charities, and that happens internationally in particular. Many Canadian organizations are working with third parties on the ground in many countries, but it also happens in Canada, in Indigenous communities, and in other organizations in Canada. And when they work with these non-charities, they are working to further their own activity but they're not always running the program themselves. It's not always something that is their activity. They're working in collaboration with other groups. So because the Income Tax Act doesn't really permit the transfer of resources to something that's not a charity, over the years lawyers like me and others that work with the charitable sector have come up with agreements and ways to work with these organizations that aren't charities that permit the allocation of resources to these programs in a way that either tries to make them the own activities of the charity or for sure makes it clear it's not a grant to the non charity so that they're in compliance with the Income Tax Act. And many of these arrangements are somewhat artificial. They comply, they ensure that the money is being spent the way it should be, but they're cumbersome, they're bulky, and most particularly, they contain a requirement that the Canadian charity organization has the last say, is directing and controlling what's going on. And that is problematic for many groups who work alongside the charity who need to be making the decisions, have the experience and probably the expertise to make better decisions than the actual Canadian charity, but are sort of forced into a role that feels somewhat subservient because of these direction and control rules. For a
0: lawyer like Susan Mannering, Bill S two sixteen would provide more transparency and accountability for nonprofit activities while eliminating the need for the kind of legal fiction that the present law often forces organizations into
3: let's say i'm an education charity and i'm supposed to be teaching something but you are doing a different teaching thing in your own role that you've done for a number of years let's say it's teaching on public policy or something separate and yet All of a sudden I have a program where I think it's important that you should be able to provide some help to some of my beneficiaries. And so instead of you doing it on your own, I'm saying your activity is my activity. It's artificial, it doesn't make sense that I can't give you some resources to help you go out and run that program on your own, but in a manner which helps me with the beneficiaries that I have as a charity. So what would be helpful is if we understand in the law that we are transferring assets or we are giving resources to an organization that's not a charity and that we report on the reason we're giving them is because they're doing something that is consistent with our charitable purpose but it is them that's doing it it's not us that's doing it and that's the artificiality and some of the agreements where we say it's actually my charity's activity not your organization's it's really not if you really look at the actual work being done, you would be doing most of it. So it really does show up as artificial when you look at it. Whereas if we had a system which Bill S-216 supports where I could actually in my reporting, in my description of what I'm doing, be very clear that I'm directing resources to a non-charity to do something for the work that I do that will further my purpose and then the reality is you would then report on how you do what you're doing and it would be consistent so it wouldn't be me trying to own what you do.
0: There are more lawyers than Susan Mannering who oppose the current Income Tax Act and the way its rules force some nonprofits into these kinds of artificial situations. Here's Senator Omidvar speaking of the backing for Bill S 216 she's received from an influential group of legal minds.
1: I have been supported in this rather long and exhausting journey by a brain trust that is made up of Canada's top charity lawyers who derive actually a lot of business from this law because they are responsible for crafting these complicated agreements between a charity and a non-charity. They have written an open letter calling the current rules out of date, disenfranchising, and they have termed them a legal fiction. It's a legal fiction everybody participates in to get around the law. It is time for the law to get around itself.
7: The own activities requirement in the Income Tax Act was first introduced in the 1950s and has not been updated since. The original aim was to provide a safeguard against charities and foundations simply transferring funds from one to the other without reporting or accountability. In effect, the Act says that a charity must devote its resources to charitable activities, carried on by the organization itself. But as Senator Omidvar noted in a speech to the Senate, that goal had the unintended impact of strangling cooperation and collaboration, and it's resulted in a system that either requires charities to behave in a controlling and oppressive manner in order to be in compliance with the law, or to simply walk away from doing good work.
0: According to some in the nonprofit sector, the current Income Tax Act discourages charities from working with grassroots, on the ground nonprofit organizations who either can't get charitable status or don't want it, especially for those in marginalized communities. Kathy Taylor, Executive Director of ONN, the Ontario Nonprofit Network, describes how charities that may be reluctant to take on the expense of navigating the cumbersome rules the present law requires, or are uneasy about the risk of losing their charitable status, if they're deemed to be non-compliant with the rules, exacerbates the chronic underfunding of grassroots community-based organizations.
4: There's growing evidence that Black-led and Indigenous-led and focused organizations are underfunded or unfunded. They're not getting the resources they need. There's lots of reports in the last couple of years that really point to that. So allowing charities to partner with non-qualified donees, allowing them to support the emergence of leadership in the Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities really allows that critical infrastructure to grow and develop and gives opportunities to be able to test whether those ideas and projects and communities are ready to be a registered charity. Perhaps they're not. Really, the big problem is that the Income Tax Act and the resulting charitable regulations really say that a charity must have direction and control over everything it does. So imagine for a moment if an organization is supporting development in their community, they can't possibly direct and control every bit and piece of that project or initiative in their community. And so charities are reluctant to enter these relationships because they're fearful that they could lose their charitable status. So it really puts both charities and the grassroots projects at a risk. So getting rid of that direction and control, allowing charities to partner equally and more effectively with those organizations and people that are working on the ground would actually be a huge benefit to our communities. Charity law in Canada is very old, like hundreds of years old, and you know, grounded in laws from the British colonies. It's very hierarchical, it's very colonial, and it implies that community led grassroots initiatives don't know what's best for their communities. That somebody else, usually white led, larger organizations, they're the ones that have the power and the decision making.
0: Kathy Taylor's observation about the antiquated, disconnected roots of charitable activities in Canada and elsewhere
3: are echoed by nonprofit law expert Susan Mannering. The Canadian charities with a lot of money tend to represent a particular part of our population. The whole concept of charity has come out of 16th, 17th century England and feudal times. So there is a very paternalistic type approach to the common law of charity. So it's almost inherent in the charitable system that you're relieving people's poverty, you're giving alms to the poor. And the reality is that today we are supposed to be doing something much different than that but helping our system by getting rid of direction and control would certainly take us forward if we could create a framework where we could work alongside non-charity partners and work with them that would go a long way to removing this view
0: it's important to note that not all legal minds working in the sector feel that bill s216 will be effective or that it's even needed one vocal critic of the proposed legislation is Mark Bloomberg, a lawyer who advises nonprofits and charities. In his blog for canadiancharitylaw.ca, Mark makes clear his concerns about the legislation and its supporters in government, stating that eliminating structured arrangements is dangerous and a red herring to the real problems with our sector.
5: So it's got a lot of political supporters. I think all three big political parties support it. I don't think any of them know what the bill's about, to be frank. They're just supporting it because it doesn't involve a quote-unquote cost immediately to them, and lots of charities are saying we want it. So, okay, let's go with this and let's pass it. But basically, how it works is you have charities and some other groups that can issue official donation receipts. And right now, if you want to move money between these qualified donees, you can just cut a check and give money from one to the other other it's you know very seamless but every one of those groups is vetted if you will so it's like a club then you have about seven billion for-profit companies non-profits foreign charities around the world that are called non-qualified dones so the question is what sort of rules should we have with those groups what sort of controls do we need to have over that money that's really what it's about They're saying that they don't like the rules that the courts have upheld about five times, which is called direction and control or structured arrangements, where you have to do eight things basically to move money from a charity to a non-charity. You're really hiring the non-charity to do some work. I've been working in this area for a long time. Sometimes it can be glitchy or whatever, but most of the time, It works, the rules we have, you can pretty much work with any group as long as it's not involved with violence or terrorism, any group around the world. A Canadian charity can hire them to do a project and we have about $4 billion going abroad that way every year. I just worked on a $65 million project that was government funded that went to a charity and that charity gave it exclusively to non-qualified donees through direction and control. And so I think these are very doable for groups that want to just spend 10 grand abroad or groups who want to spend tens of millions of dollars abroad. What I'm worried about actually is some people are going to really wake up to the fact that maybe we don't have enough oversight of money, for example, leaving. So I think we need to have a real adult discussion about money coming in and money going out of the country. I think there's lots of great things money coming into Canada is doing and money going out is doing, but we cannot ignore that sometimes groups are also doing bad things. And how do we have oversight about it?
0: For critics of Bill S two sixteen, like Mark Bloomberg, this perceived lack of oversight in the legislation may lead to, as he puts it, secrecy in how some charities move funds around.
5: This legislation would say, you no longer have to do charitable activities You just need to have a purpose that's charitable. You can move out money. So I give the example of a foundation. It gives money, let's say, for religion to a group in the Cayman Islands, say a billion dollars. And that group gives it to another group in Turks and Caicos for a billion dollars. You've given money for the purpose. End of story. So now CRA shouldn't look at that billion dollars. Let's not discuss it. It's nothing to do with the Canadian government at this point. And I think 40 to $80 billion is going to leave this country... But if I thought 40 to 80 billion was going to go to Africa to help poor people, I would be all over it as a wonderful thing. No, it's just going to move so it's not regulated anymore. We'll have no idea. Some of the money will be well spent. Some of it will be who knows what will happen to it because in secrecy, sometimes things do happen. We're basically playing with fire here between allowing charities to do unlimited political activities, taking away the sort of barrier between a charity or or a qualified donee and the rest of the world. It makes it easier for rich people not to pay taxes because they put money in a charity who then gives the money back to them. Because if we don't have tight systems, and one can disagree exactly where the system should be and what the rules are, but if you don't have tight systems, then you're going to have people take advantage of our very generous tax systems in this country.
0: Mark Bloomberg's worries about potential financial abuse under Bill S216 are not shared by Susan Mannering.
3: So the way the bill is proposed, it removes the requirement that you have to somehow say the work that's being done by the non-charity is my activity. So it gets rid of that. But it doesn't say that I don't have to be careful who I'm granting to or who I'm working with. It requires me to do my due diligence. It requires an organization to do background checks, to understand what the work is going to be. It doesn't say there has to be something in writing, but it suggests that you have to have a framework around it, that you have to be able to get reports the organization that the charity is working with has to be able to demonstrate that it's doing what it says it's going to do it's the same work that registered charities do when they grant to other registered charities in many programs where they're directing something to a particular program i think the system we've recommended will work i think it requires a reasonableness standard It suggests that charities have to do their due diligence, they have to take steps, and it specifically requires that for a registered charity to do that work. Today, even under the direction and control system, there are abuses that happen. And those are because people intentionally want to do things that are outside of the Income Tax Act. There's no change we make that will ever guarantee that that doesn't happen because people who want to break the law will break the law. But I don't see that this new system really is increasing the risk of that. I think the new system is very similar to the system in the U.S. It's very similar to the system that has been used for years in the United Kingdom.
0: The bill's sponsor. Senator Radna Omadvar is convinced that
1: accountability can go hand in hand with empowerment. The intention of the law was to be accountable for charitable dollars. So my proposal says Yes, accountability is important. We can get accountability, but we can get it differently and get it equally, but we can do it by doing business differently so that we are not imposing these colonial workarounds on partners who are in the field doing good work. So that's what my law proposes to do. We will change the two words, own activities to expenditure responsibility. In other words, emancipating the sector to do two things. One, to continue to be accountable to the Canadian public for charitable dollars. That is incredibly important. But two, also to work in an empowered relationships with local partners, Overseas partners, indigenous organizations, racial minority groups, all these organizations who are doing essential public good but are not charities. For people like Mark Bloomberg, however, the good intentions of proposed
0: reforms to the Income Tax Act as it relates to charities may be undermined by the unwillingness of some nonprofits to shift their attitudes towards non registered groups, no matter what provisions Bill S 216 may.
5: To be brutally honest, I think that the foundation sector as a whole, not talking about individual foundations, but foundation sector as a whole, has been underwhelming in terms of its grant making, the quality of the grant making, and also the amounts given out. For example, there are 1,000 or maybe 1,500 indigenous groups that are qualified donees. Many of them have gotten zero money from foundations. Not a little bit, None! I don't even know what to say because I think that one of our biggest issues in Canada is the indigenous issue. I think government has to step up. I think foundations have to step up. I think regular charities have to step up. People have to step up. Everyone has to step up. You've got one foundation sitting on $40 billion. How much are they giving to indigenous groups in Canada? So I think that there's a lot of questions people don't want to ask. They would much prefer to criticize the system and say, this is a systemic problem, blah, blah. No, well, no. If you had a foundation with $100 million and you want to give out $10 million and you want to give it all to Indigenous people, you know what? You can. But the total amount of money given by all charities, all foundations to Indigenous people is actually very low. I think it was $50 million or something like that. you got to understand that Brigham Young University in Utah gets more money from charities in Canada than all Indigenous people in Canada. Their organizations get money. I don't know where the thing is going here wrong. There's a problem. The problem isn't the system, it's the people.
1: Senator Omidvar. Thank you, Speaker. Honorable Senators, I rise today to speak to Bill S-216, the Effective and Accountable Charities Act.
7: In her speech to the Upper House of Parliament Parliament about Bill S-216, Senator Ratna Omidvar referenced the report by the Senate Special Committee on the charitable sector. This report, she said, found that the current approach to ensuring accountability of tax-exempt charitable dollars was costly, inefficient, and inconsistent with contemporary values of equal partnership, inclusion, and local empowerment. According to the senator, these legal rules are a perfect example of an expression of systemic racism which is embedded in Canadian law. She went on to explain that, Most indigenous organizations, beyond band councils or other forms of local government, are not registered charities. The only way for these groups to receive charitable dollars is to submit to a complicated and expensive arrangement between themselves and the sponsoring charity.
2: One of the impacts of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, in my view, is that now people believe now people understand that it did happen. Now people realize that in fact this is part of Canada's history.
3: I
4: believe today is about truth. The truth has to come before reconciliation and that's what this day is about. It's about non-Indigenous Canadians standing shoulder to shoulder with us and taking that time to reflect on what has happened in Canada, that genocide did happen in Canada, that our children were the victims of that. It's a detriment to health and a dehumanizing problem faced by many First Nations across the country, lack of access to safe drinking water. Sharla Munias is 23 years old and has never had access to clean drinking water at home.
6: Sometimes like I just feel like losing hope. Like, what's the point? Like, are we supposed to live like this our whole lives? Is that what they
2: expect of us?
0: As lawyer Mark Bloomberg mentioned earlier in this podcast, simply changing the Income Tax Act may not be enough in terms of reversing the chronic underfunding of Indigenous and other marginalized populations. Why is the charitable sector risk-averse when it comes to these communities? And what impact, if any, will Bill S-216 make? Bill Mintram is Mady from Saskatchewan and Director of Indigenous and Northern Relations for the Rideau Hall Foundation, where he assists organizations and institutions in strengthening their relationships with Indigenous peoples and communities, while responding to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. Part of Bill Mintram's role is to oversee the funding agreements between the foundation and the Indigenous organizations it works with. We asked him about his own experiences navigating the current system as it relates to funding nonprofits and Indigenous organizations without charitable status.
2: Well, I can tell you as an example, providing funding for a non Indigenous organization to a non qualified donee who are Indigenous recipients, that I have been working on funding agreements just over the last number of months within that space. And The current way that we have to go about providing that funding, I feel a bit awkward. I feel like I'm being disrespectful because I have to create agreements that essentially outline that I am going to provide funds from a non-Indigenous organization to an Indigenous organization, and I'm going to tell them that their use of these funds are on behalf of my organization and my charitable objects, not their mission and mandate, not their ability to be self-determining and to be able to impact their communities in a meaningful way. I have to communicate to them in an agreement that they're working on behalf of a non-Indigenous entity and everything they do is for the purposes of that non-Indigenous entity. And that, frankly, is not showing respect. Mm
0: In addition to the lack of respect Bill Mintram sees built into the current Income Tax Act, there is also a disconnect between reconciliatory intentions verbally expressed and the actual language written into agreements between charities and
2: Indigenous groups. If I were to take a project agreement for providing funding to a non-qualified donee who is an Indigenous recipient, and I were to try and tell them that we want to work with you in a reconciliatory manner, we want to work with you in a relationship-driven manner, we believe in you, we trust in you, but yet the words I'm putting in paper and asking them to sign off on don't demonstrate that trust. They don't demonstrate that ability for autonomy, that ability for self-determination, and that is the opposite of the direction that we should be heading as a nation. And so Bill S-216 does address some of those areas to be able to still maintain those accountability measures, but being able to enter into a much more respectful relationship with those who are doing amazing work for the public good.
0: Much of the discussion around Bill S-216 focuses on phrases like direction and control in the current Income Tax Act. Meaning, the requirement for nonprofits to act as if charitable activities they are funding through a third party organization were actually their own. I asked Chris Archie, Chief Executive Officer of the registered charity, the Circle on Philanthropy and Aboriginal Peoples in
6: Canada, if language like this was part of the problem. I would say yes and no. So, this conversation about S216 is much larger than direction and control. That being said, the specific language of direction and control and the way in which it has to be enacted is very paternalistic and largely could be undone in ways that are more helpful not only to the charitable organization that's serving as the intermediary to flow funds through to a a non-qualified or a non-charitable organization or an entity to do good work. But I think that the other piece that just needs to be said is that organizations all across this country are already doing this. They're already in relationships, in partnerships, whereby they are supposed to have a level of oversight and control and to direct the activities of organizations that they're flowing funding through to. And for all kinds of reasons, that is not only unreasonable or not possible because of the lack of cultural context and or because the very specific nature of the work that an organization is doing that an intermediary could never do on its own would just make that a relationship that's fraught with a lot of difficulties. Now doing away with that language I think doesn't just magically make everything better but it does invite a different kind of a conversation about what does partnership mean. When an organization is choosing to support as an intermediary Indigenous organization, I think that it provides Indigenous organizations with a little bit more ownership over the work that they're doing.
4: The tradition of the Orange T-Shirt Day grew out of Phyllis Webstad's personal story and reflections on being a residential school student. And it's now used as a day to honour residential school survivors. It's an opportunity for them to tell their stories and their experiences and also educate other Canadians about residential school experiences.
2: The younger generation learning about the history is welcomed by 87-year-old survivor Fred Gordon.
7: Yeah, a lot of terrible things happened there.
2: He attended residential school in LaBrette, Saskatchewan for five years.
7: I used to watch a lot of stuff going. Lots of terrible stuff. Orange
0: Shirt Day is about resilience. Bomberry says it took her years, but she is learning to heal from the trauma she endured.
6: I had to take off this coat of shame and guilt and start, and start dealing with me, my trauma inside.
0: Bomberry says the herd is intergenerational. She felt it from her mother and grandmother growing up, and now her children and grandchildren know the pain too. Chris Archie also provided a somewhat ironic example of how current tax rules and attitudes determine what is and isn't considered a charity. Here she is speaking about the well-known Orange Shirt Day started by the grassroots Orange Shirt Society to support Indian residential school reconciliation, create awareness of the intergenerational impacts of residential schools and the Every Child Matters movement. Orange Shirt Day takes place on the same date as the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation.
6: So lots of folks know about the Orange Shirt Society, Orange Shirt Day, right? That is a prime example of an organization that was denied charitable status because their work was not deemed as recognizably charitable. How wild is that? Knowing what we know now about how undeniable the value of their education work is, that they're denied charitable status, which means if anyone wants to give money to them, they can't get a receipt. What folks should be doing year-round is not waiting until June to think about Indigenous peoples in their community. What they could be doing year-round is abundantly funding Indigenous-led organizations. They can be engaging in education with their boards and their teams all year-round. But additionally, they could be taking the time to understand how to support the education of their donors. I think charitable organizations who want to do fundraisers or show support for Indigenous organizations should find ways to do it so that they are taking on the administrative burden of how to make that happen. Many many organizations that we connected with last year were just flooded with a barrage of requests for speaking engagements, for hey can you help us or we want to help you, can we show up and volunteer. And all of these requests were taken away from Indigenous peoples and their organization's time to just be present with the reality of Orange Shirt Day. And so if you want to build relationships with Indigenous organizations, that is a year-round activity. So, will Bill 2S16 achieve its aim of allowing
0: charities to collaborate with other organizations more efficiently? Is it enough?
6: we stand very clear that Indigenous-led service delivery organizations and programming is the best solution to support Indigenous peoples. So, does 216 on its own mean more money for Indigenous organizations? Heck no. And we know that. So, let's be very clear about this. Organizations who already have the interest, the ability, and the desire to give to Indigenous groups, whether they are qualified, donors, charitable, or grassroots organizations – They're already doing it. And I have a growing member list of settler philanthropic organizations who are very dedicated to thinking and doing differently and who are absolutely funding Indigenous-led work all across this country. So will it make a huge difference to folks who aren't already paying attention to Indigenous organizations and issues and not funding it? Probably not. And so the real thing that matters is what will be the language of implementation around Bill S216? I think there's a lot more conversation that needs to be had with organizations. Sadly, I don't think there are many Indigenous leaders who are part of the conversations that matter around the implementation language. That can be rectified. But ultimately, I think that this is a bill that provides an aspirational stance in a sector that is scrambling for easier ways to demonstrate a commitment to equity. Here's Bill Mintram of the
0: Rideau Hall Foundation with his thoughts.
2: I wouldn't say that Bill S-216 is the answer to everything. It's another piece of the puzzle. I think there's great opportunity for increased investment within Indigenous organizations. And knowing that there are many that are non-qualified donees, Meanwhile, also knowing there are many who are qualified Donies, but the level of funding that they receive from the philanthropic sector has not been on an equitable playing field as many of the non-Indigenous similar style or organizations. And there's many reasons in the background for why that is in place. Some of those aspects include that the organizations had become dependent on government sources of funds, or there may be other reasons why they haven't. But one of the overarching reasons is they haven't had access. They haven't been invited to the tables within the philanthropic sector to really be able to share and make their case of what they're doing and how they can do it.
7: Oral questions. Question Oral,
2: the Honourable Leader of the Opposition.
6: Since the beginning of this impasse,
0: Bill S 216 appears to be remaining true to the sometimes bumpy road it has taken. Initially buoyed by news that the Liberal government had said it would embrace the spirit of Senator Omidvar's bill within its Budget Implementation Act, the sector later recoiled in alarm at the language actually contained in the government's legislation. This was especially worrying because if the Implementation Act becomes law, it means that S 216 will effectively be null and void, as many of its key aims were intended to be contained within the federal budget. The contentious language in the Budget Implementation Act sparked leaders from a broad cross section of the Canadian charitable and nonprofit sector to meet with MPs and senators and lobby for change. The delegation was seeking support for amendments to language in the government's bill that have been described as direction and control on steroids, and which they said failed to meet expectations raised in the Liberal government's announcements about the 2022 federal budget." In a media release from Imagine Canada, John Clayton, Director of Programs and Projects at Samaritan's Purse Canada, said that the mechanism used to solve the issue in the budget implementation language is actually harmful and may have a net negative impact on the charitable sector. One of the officials the group met with was NDP MP Nikki Ashton, who later spoke in Parliament about why Bill S-216 and the amendments proposed for C-19, the Budget Implementation Act, which will supersede it, were so important to the sector. We believe
4: that this bill can address the challenges that the charitable sector is facing. And I want to acknowledge those who have come forward that have supported this proactive solution. Let's be clear, the federal government has failed to meet the charitable organization's needs with what has been proposed in Bill C-19. After a full
0: court press by the nonprofit sector, it now appears that the delegation won a major victory in seeking amendments to the language in the Budget Implementation Act that will better reflect the major tenets of Senator Omidvar's Bill S-216 and retain its central objectives. Changing the Income Tax Act to allow charities to make transfers to non-qualified donees, providing the charity takes reasonable measures to ensure the transferred funds are used exclusively for charitable purposes. While getting rid of paternalistic and colonial rules largely considered to be outdated relics, best relegated to the past. Assuming the budget bill passes with the delegation's amendments, what will the nonprofit landscape look like in future? As we've heard, some sector leaders are optimistic about the potential for positive and meaningful change the legislation will bring, while others remain skeptical and worry about oversight and unexpected consequences. The Philanthropist Journal quotes Bob Wyatt, the Executive Director of Edmonton's Muttart Foundation, who said about Bill S. 216, I'm just not sure this is being fully thought through. You could end up with regulations that are worse than what we're dealing with now. For Senator Ratna Omidvar, this hard-won victory was cause for celebration. Also speaking with the Philanthropist Journal, the senator said, I'm hugely relieved. Mission accomplished. While the onerous journey of Bill S-216 reveals the challenges charities face when seeking more flexible and progressive regulations for their activities, Senator Omidvar has a simple message for those who question the need for these changes to the Income Tax Act. Let's not make it so hard to do good she says, especially at a time when we need a strong charitable sector in Canada. It should not have to work with one hand tied behind its back. Check our show notes and our website for links to resources to help you explore this and other topics. I want to thank our guests for joining us and sharing their thoughts and insights into the pros and cons of Bill S 216, its potential impact on the nonprofit sector, and what it could mean for communities in Canada and around the world. If you'd like to hear the entire conversations with our guests, please visit CharityVillage.com to watch all the video interviews. Charity Village is proud to be the Canadian source for nonprofit news, employment services, crowdfunding e-learning, HR resources and tools, and so much more. Please take a moment to check out our website at charityvillage.com. In our next episode, we'll explore how technology is impacting nonprofits and how the launch of the new Canadian Centre for Nonprofit Digital Resilience is exposing the gap in the sector's digital tech adoption. We'll also cover the new PayPal Canada report of the Future of Giving and important research by Sage Canada on digital transformation in Canadian nonprofits during the pandemic. Plus, some tips and strategies for using technology to better manage your fundraising, operations, and financial systems. The digital transformation of nonprofits. Next time on Charity Village
3: Connects.